Welcome to Time Traveling Deep, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor and his companions for their final story of the season in Time Flight. As usual, we'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains, and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. Now, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, X slash Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. But as always, I shall lead us off in the story recap. Please do. Well, I have a biscuit. What type of biscuit? Ginger nut. Nice. I don't take offence to you calling me a ginger nut, by the way. <laughs> Part 1. As it approaches Heathrow Airport, a Concorde aircraft begins to lose communication with the air traffic control tower. The controller in charge of the flight informs his supervisor, and together they watch as the plane disappears off the radar screen. Meanwhile, the latter bids goodbye to Scott, Briggs and Berger after returning them to their own time. He goes back inside the TARDIS and Mrs. Somberly tells him that the Cyberman invasion fleet has been dispersed. Tegan angrily gives out about how they are acting, thinking that they aren't properly acknowledging Adric's death. She demands that the Doctor go back in time and rescue him, but he says that they can't go back across their own timelines and forbids them from asking him again. He says that Adric died nobly, just like his brother did, and that they should honour it. He says that they will all miss him and says that he will take them somewhere special to try and cheer them up. He plots a course for the opening day of the Great Exhibition of 1851 in London. However, when they are taking off, the TARDIS begins to shake violently, and the Doctor quickly does a systems check, but Nissa says everything is functioning normally. She says that they could have crossed paths with another ship, and says that they need to materialise or the TARDIS could blow apart. The TARDIS appears in the flight path of the missing plane, hovering above Heathrow Airport. Tegan says that they need to leave again lest they collide with an oncoming plane, and the Doctor activates an override switch, forcing the TARDIS to rematerialise inside one of the terminal buildings. The Doctor rushes outside to check something, and Tegan says that they can't be inside the terminal for too long, explaining to a confused Nissa that police call boxes no longer serve a function in that time period. They follow the Doctor outside to find him reviewing a newspaper for the cricket scores, and alert him to the approach of a group of security guards, as well as the head of airport security. He asks the Doctor to open the TARDIS, but instead the Doctor tells him to contact the unit for his credentials and asks for his regards to be passed on to the Brigadier. A short while later, the Doctor and the others are brought to the office of the airport director due to the fact that the unit have authorised the Doctor to investigate the disappearance of the plane. Teen gives out that no matter where they go, the Doctor always gets involved, a sentiment echoed by Nyssa. The Doctor says that he is just trying to help, but Teen expresses doubt as his ability to do so. The Doctor ignores her and goes into the office where he is given all the information about the plane's disappearance. Nissa says that the TARDIS may have crossed paths with the plane when they were in the time vortex and the Doctor agrees, saying that maybe the plane is lost in time. The Doctor asks for another Concorde plane to be prepared in order to recreate the other plane's landing approach and he has the TARDIS loaded into it. He says he believes that there is a time warp present in the area and he will use the TARDIS to locate it and seal it. They board the plane and are introduced to the crew of Captain Stapley, his co-pilot Bilton, and flight engineer Scobie. They express scepticism at the Doctor's plan, with Scobie highlighting the fact that they could suffer the same fate as the other plane. The Doctor tells them not to worry, as they have the TARDIS. He then heads back into the time machine with Nyssa and Tegan, and they monitor the plane's descent to Heathrow. Nyssa notices that the console has begun to register that they are travelling in time, and the Doctor says that they must have entered the time warp. 
He goes back to the cabin and says that they will no longer be able to contact Heathrow due to the spatial distance, but they suddenly get clearance to land. Stapley tells him to prepare for landing, and the doctor leaves confused. However, back at the control tower, the plane has disappeared off the radar. Stapley leads everyone off the plane and towards the terminal building, but Nissa says that something doesn't feel right. She looks around and suddenly sees a group of decaying corpses at the base of a rock wall and screams. She tells the others about what she saw, but nobody sees it. The doctor tells everyone to concentrate on their surroundings in order to break the illusion. The others reluctantly do as he says, and they suddenly see Heathrow disappear and find themselves in a barren, windswept wasteland. Stapley asks where they are, and the doctor says that they are still at Heathrow, but over 140 million years in the past. Stapley asks how they could have landed unharmed, but the doctor points out the damage to the landing gear, saying that they were tricked into thinking the landing was smooth. He tells them they need to be careful, as someone must be behind the illusion. Suddenly, Tegan points out the other plane in the distance, and she rushes to investigate it, chased by the doctor who tells the others to stay where they are. However, not long after they leave, Nissa says that the doctor is in danger and rushes off after him, followed by Stapley and the others. Unbeknownst to them, they are observed through a crystal ball by a mysterious figure. The figure, a rotund, bald, grey-skinned man in oriental-style robes, turns from the dais that he is on and issues instructions to the passengers of the other plane, who are all in a trance-like state. Out in the wilderness, Nissa and the others are presented with another illusion, but she and Stapley manage to help the others break through it. They continue on their way, and they suddenly see the TARDIS being dragged away by a group of passengers. Milton and Scobie recognise some of the flight crew from the other plane and go to them, discovering that they think they are in New York. Milton and Scobie try to get them to see past the illusion, but suddenly a group of strange bulbous creatures appear and swarm the duo, causing them to disappear in a haze of smoke. Nissa and Stapley rush back to their own plane where they find the Doctor and Tegan waiting for them. As they explain what happened, the mysterious creatures materialise around the Doctor and begin to form the haze of smoke. Part 2 Tegan and Stapley rush to the Doctor's aid, but Nissa tells him not to interfere, saying that everything will be okay. In the haze, the Doctor hears a disembodied voice begging for his help before fading completely. He gets back to his feet and explains to his confused companions that the creatures are called plasmatons, creatures created from the psychokinetic energy in the atmosphere. Nissa interrupts him and tells him about the theft of the TARDIS. He asks where they went, but suddenly an elderly man appears, introducing himself as Professor Hayter, and says he was a passenger on the other plane. He says he was the only one from the other plane that was able to break through the illusion, and states his belief that they were kidnapped by the Russian Air Force and taken to a secret facility. He says that everyone was placed under some form of hypnosis and taken to a mausoleum, but he was able to resist as he's a specialist in hypnotic studies. Stapley and the doctor ask him to show him to the mausoleum so they can rescue everyone and retrieve the TARDIS. Tegan lets slip about their real time and location, and Nissa tries to explain it to hate her, but he says that they must be under hypnotic spell. Stapley reasons with him and says that if he helps them, they can all go back home. Elsewhere, the mysterious figure watches as the brainwashed passengers, along with Bilton and Scobie, bring the TARDIS into his chamber. He then dismisses them, but Bilton starts to break through his conditioning, forcing the man to rehypnotize him. The man then inspects the TARDIS, kissing it in delight. However, he is distracted by an alarm and sees an image through the crystal ball of the Doctor's party approaching the mausoleum. Outside, Nissa suddenly screams in pain and begins to breathe strangely, but the Doctor tells everyone to keep back. Nissa then speaks in a hollow voice, telling them to stay away from the mausoleum. The Doctor tells the others that a force is using Nissa as a medium, and then asks who they are. The voice tells them that something is affecting their collective, but they are attempting to resist it. 
Suddenly the smoke appears around Nyssa, and when it dissolves, the Eurasina she is cocooned in a material similar to what the plasmatons were formed from. Doctor says that they might be able to free her if they can find the source of the illusion in the mausoleum. Stapley offers to stay behind and guard Nyssa, but Tegan says that she will do it. Doctor says that once Nyssa is free, they are both to go back to the plane and wait for them to come back with the TARDIS. Hazer is reluctant to go on, saying that Nyssa is clearly suffering from radiation sickness, but the Doctor says that the only way they can save everyone is by continuing. They make their way into the mausoleum and they encounter Bilton and Scobie and a few others working on opening a large stone pod. The Doctor then becomes separated from Stapley and Hater as he continues down the corridor in search of the TARDIS. Stapley insists that they need to try and free the others and grows frustrated with Hater, who stubbornly refuses to believe the Doctor's claims and insists they are prisoners of the Soviet Union. The Doctor makes his way through a series of tunnels and eventually comes to the main chamber containing the TARDIS, where he is confronted by the mysterious man. The man introduces himself as Khalid, and the Doctor asks what he wants. Khalid says that he is a magician from Arabia, but the Doctor doesn't believe him and asks what he is doing at the end of the time warp and why he stole the TARDIS. Khalid says that the spirits informed of the Doctor's arrival with the TARDIS. The Doctor then asks why he kidnapped all the passengers, and Khalid says that he needs slaves for his work. Doctor points out that he has control over the plasmatons before realising that Khalid requires the psychokinetic energy for another purpose. Khalid says he wants the Doctor's help to rule time and space, and that he has no choice but to obey him. He then shows the Doctor an image of Nyssa and Tegan and Stapley and Hater, but the Doctor says that Khalid isn't the one in charge. In the other chamber, Stapley wonders where the Doctor has gone, but Hater says that they can't wait for him and convinces him to try and rescue the hypnotised crew and passengers. Stapley agrees and together they attempt to break through to the others. Stapley nearly gets sucked back into the illusion, but Hater manages to pull him out of it. Together they manage to snap Bilton and Scobie out of the illusion, which causes an alarmed Kali to summon the plasmatons, thereby freeing Nyssa as the energy can only be used so much. The plasmatons appear in the chamber and block off the escape of Stapley and the others, before bringing them back to Kali's chamber. Meanwhile, Nyssa wakes up and insists that they need to go to help the Doctor, despite Tegan's insistence that they follow his instructions. They enter the mausoleum and make their way towards Khalid's chamber, guided by an intuition Nyssa feels. As they make their way down one of the corridors, they encounter Adric, who says that they will destroy him if they continue to come any closer. Tegan is reluctant to go forward, but Nyssa says that it is an illusion, and points out that Adric is still wearing his badge, which was destroyed when the Doctor used it to kill the Cyber Leader. The two of them press on, much to Khalid's, who is watching the progress with the Doctor's consternation. They next encounter a vision of the Melkor that the Master used on Traken, but Nissa's determination causes the illusion to fade. They then encounter a vision of the Terraleptal they encountered in London, but they easily go past it before arriving in an ornate chamber, which Khalid reveals as the inner sanctum of the mausoleum, which controls its power source. He then uses the psychokinetic energy to create a vicious two-headed snake and threatens to kill Stapley and the others unless the Doctor gives him the key to the TARDIS. However, the snake disappears when Tegan and Nyssa shatter a power node with a rock fragment and the energy feedback throws Kelly to the floor, where he starts to slowly dissolve. Hater goes to investigate the crystal ball and then gloats when he says that the inner workings appear to be normal electronics. The Doctor says that he doesn't understand and turns when he suddenly hears laughter from behind. Khalid stands up and reveals himself to be the master in disguise. Part 3 Hater and Scobie discuss the strange construction of the crystal ball's plinth and the Doctor notices that the components are from the master's TARDIS. 
He says that the Master must have been stranded on Earth's past and after he escaped from Castrovalva and created the Time Warp in an attempt to maintain a connection with the future in order to scavenge the technology he needed to escape. The Master says he needs the Doctor's TARDIS in order to penetrate the inner sanctum of the mausoleum as he says it holds a great power. The Doctor says that the power seems to have been destroyed by Nissa and Tegan, but the Master says that it will reform and that Nissa and Tegan are most likely dead as a result of the energy feedback. However, the Doctor says that the power is working against him and probably saved his companions. The Master demands the TARDIS key and threatens to use his tissue decompressor. Stapley and Bilton go to attack him, but the Doctor intervenes and gives the Master the key. The Master leaves in the TARDIS and the others watch, dumbfounded by the disappearance of the machine. Scobie asks how Nissa and Tegan were able to get into the Sanctum if the Master couldn't, and the Doctor says that the power source is sentient and is attempting to resist him. He then says that he will go and try and find the Sanctum, and that he will only take Hater with him, as he is shown to have the strongest resistance to the illusions. He warns Stapley and the others that the Master may return, telling them that he had rigged the TARDIS's navigational system. The Doctor and Hater return to the chamber where they discover the other passengers have been released from the illusion due to an interference to the power source. The Chief Flight Attendant, Angela, approaches them and asks if they know what's going on and the Doctor and Hater try to come up with an explanation that won't cause a panic. Back in the other chamber, the TARDIS returns and the Master exits to take some part from the crystal plinth. While he does this, Stapley and Bilton, who had taken cover when they heard the TARDIS approaching, sneak into the TARDIS and attempt to find a way to lock the Master out. However, they aren't able to figure out the control console and are forced to hide when he returns. The Master attaches a piece of equipment to the console and attempts to take off, but it doesn't work, even after several attempts. He frustratedly leaves the TARDIS and Stapley tells Bilton to keep a lookout whilst he swaps various circuit boards in the console in an attempt to sabotage the Master. Meanwhile, the Doctor has managed to convince the other passengers to help him and tells them to continue their work of attempting to break into the Sanctum, which is located beneath the pod that the Doctor saw when he first arrived there. Angela asks how they will be able to resist the illusions again and Haters gives her advice before joining the Doctor who has found the Master's TARDIS. The Doctor notices cabling running around the TARDIS to the pod wall, and he realises that the Master has already been siphoning power from the Sanctum, and says they need to get to Nissa and Tegan quickly. They manage to crack the Sanctum wall, and the Doctor and Hater go inside and help Nissa and Tegan back to their feet. Nissa says that they were willed to come into the Sanctum, and Hater asks who did it. The Doctor shows him a sarcophagus in the centre of the Sanctum, and inside they see the source of the power, an amorphous orange mass that the Doctor says is surrounded by immeasurable psychic energy. Nissa asks why it guided him to try and destroy it, and the Doctor explains that the power source is currently at war with itself in a Jekyll and Hyde-like struggle due to the Master's influence. He says that the uncorrupted aspect must have guided them in, but Hater then points out that the Sanctum Maud is sealed over again, trapping them inside. <coughs> Back on the TARDIS, the Master returns and catches Stapley and Bilton as they finish their sabotage. Their happiness is short-lived, though, as the Master takes some of the circuit boards from the console and then activates the flight controls before he leaves, stranding them in the TARDIS as it dematerializes. Back in the Sanctum, the Doctor says that the corrupted aspect of the power must have reasserted its control over the passengers and forced them to reseal the pod. Hater brings their attention to some tribal figurines he found, and the Doctor recognises them as representing the Xerophon, a race long thought extinct after being destroyed in the crossfire of a stellar war. Tegan points out that they aren't actually figurines, and the Doctor realises that they were the victims of the Master's tissue decompressor. 
He further realizes that the entity in the sarcophagus is actually the gestalt psychic remnants of the entire Xerophon race. He says that the Master is planning on using the entity as a power source for his TARDIS. Nissa then says that the power is returning and begins to approach the sarcophagus. She then begins to speak in the possessed voice that she earlier did outside the mausoleum, telling the Doctor that it is the only way that they can gain the knowledge to escape the sanctum. However, Hathor tells her to stay back, saying that he will take her place. The Doctor says it is too dangerous, but he says it is an opportunity that he cannot pass up. Tegan pulls Nissa away as the power floods Hater, causing him to scream in pain before falling to the floor unconscious. Meanwhile, Scobie, having stayed behind on Stapley's orders to wait for the Doctor, grows tired of waiting and makes his way to the pod chamber. En route, he finds Angela, who is struggling to fight off the illusion using the techniques that Hater told her. She tells him how they broke into the pod with the Doctor, and Scobie tells her to bring him to the pod. They arrive back to discover the sealed pod, and they begin to break it open again. However, Angela wanders off, and Scobie hides as he sees the Master order her into his TARDIS. In the Sanctum, the Doctor and the others watch as Hater's body dissolves before seeing a Xerophon form within the sarcophagus. The Doctor asks what the Xerophon are doing on Earth, and the Xerophon, who names itself Anathon, says that they came to Earth in the hopes of building a new world, but the entire race was stricken with radiation poisoning from the war. Anathon says the Xerophon chose to meld their consciousness together in an attempt to wait out the radiation sickness before reverting to their original forms. However, just as before they could do that, the Master arrived and began his attempts to control them. He says that the Master attuned his own mental energy to the base nature of the Xerophon consciousness, which allowed him to shatter the cohesion of the positive nature, making it harder to resist him. Suddenly Anathon screams in pain as he splits into two, and a new Xerophon forms, introducing itself as Zarek. It tells the Doctor that the Xerophon have a new destiny now, given to them by the Master. Anathon proves to be the stronger in a battle of wills, but Zarek begins to summon other evil Xerophon to help him take control of the whole consciousness. Anathon asks for help, and Nyssa says that they must lend their own mental energy to help him stop the evil Xerophon from emerging. With much effort, they manage to prevent the emergence, but Zarek says they are, they are too late as he and Anathon disappear along with the sarcophagus. Tegan asks what happened, and the Doctor says that the Master must have completed the induction loop and transferred the sarcophagus into his own TARDIS, finally defeating the Doctor. Part 4 Tegan snaps the Doctor out of his despondent state, saying that there must be some way of stopping the Master. The Doctor says they need to find a way out of the Sanctum. Nissa says that without the Xerophon to aid them, they will need to use brute force to make an exit. Their efforts prove futile, but they suddenly hear the sound of a TARDIS materialising, and they see that it is the Doctor's. They cautiously approach it and see Stapley and Bilton exit. The Quintet exchange warm greetings, and the Doctor commands Stapley on his ability to fly the TARDIS. However, the Captain reveals that despite his best efforts, he wasn't able to control it, and Bilton reveals that Hater showed them how to pilot the ship. Tegan reveals that Hater is dead and his body destroyed, but Nyssa says that he may have actually been absorbed into the Seraphim entity. She suggests that his presence may have been the uncorrupted part of the Seraphim consciousness, using the last of its power to help them. The Doctor piles the TARDIS out of the chamber, and they all exit to find Scobie wandering around. He tells them about the Master's departure, and the Doctor says that they are still in the same time zone as him, as the TARDIS will need to acclimatise to its new power source. Scobie says that the Master took all the other passengers with him, and the Doctor says that they are in great danger. He instructs Nyssa to pilot the TARDIS back to the cargo holds of Stapley's plane, and tells him, Bilton and Scobie, to prepare it for takeoff. 
He tells Tegan to come with him and they make their way back to the crystal chamber. The doctor discovers that the master has taken all the TARDIS components from the plinth and he says they need to go back to the others. At the plane, Scobie and Nissa do an inspection and see that there are some minor repairs needed to be done. Scobie says they can use the parts from the other plane, but when he turns to look at it, he says that he thinks he saw that it shimmer. They are soon joined by Stapley and Bilton, as well as the Doctor and Tegan. Stapley tells them about the repairs that they need to perform, but the Doctor points out that the other plane was damaged when it landed, but the one they are looking at is now in perfect condition. He reveals that it is the Master's TARDIS, having used its chameleon circuit to alter its appearance, and then materialise around the actual plane. The Doctor says he has no choice but to materialise his own TARDIS around the Master's. Just as Tegan and Nyssa begin to object, they see the Master's TARDIS dematerialise. The Doctor begins to say that they are now stranded in the past, but suddenly the Master's TARDIS reappears, and they go to investigate. They find the Master tinkering with a piece of equipment, and he commends the Doctor on his foresight on sabotaging his own TARDIS. The Doctor expresses confusion at this and begins to berate Nyssa for interfering with the TARDIS, until Stapley admits that he was the one that caused the sabotage. The Doctor congratulates him and then begins to negotiate with the Master as to how they can all leave. The Master agrees to release all the passengers and give Stapley the parts he needs to fix his own plane, as well as the Doctor the parts he stole from the TARDIS. In return, the Doctor will give the Master the equipment he needs to pilot his own TARDIS away. The two groups then go about fixing their various crafts, with the Doctor and the Master each withholding a vital component to ensure that there is no attempt at a double cross. However, the Master soon grows frustrated and threatens to start killing the passengers unless the Doctor gives him the final component. The Doctor finishes doing his own repairs and then goes to meet the Master for the exchange. The Master gleefully departs and safely says that he could wreak havoc anywhere. The Doctor, however, reveals that the Master will go back to Heathrow, explaining that he will need to do a systems check by flying through the time warp. He then says that it is time that they also left, and has Stapley prepare for the takeoff whilst Tegan helps the passengers on board. The Doctor and Nissa head back to the TARDIS, and the Doctor says that even though the Master left first, he will arrive back in Heathrow after them due to some tinkering that the Doctor did with the components programming. He then joins Stapley in the cockpit as they take off and programs the flight computer before going back to the TARDIS. Once there, he explains to Tegan and Nyssa that he will dematerialise the TARDIS when the plane enters the time warp, thereby causing it to hopefully reappear in its own time. The plan works and the TARDIS lands atop the control tower of Heathrow. Nyssa and Tegan go outside and watch as the plane lands. Nyssa comments on the strange nature of air flight and Tegan talks about how exciting it is. Nissa then spots two policemen approaching, and she goes to warn the Doctor, who at that moment is watching as the Master's TARDIS attempts to materialise, but can't. They go inside the TARDIS, and the Doctor says that he is currently occupying the same spatial coordinates that the Master is trying to land in. He then activates a switch on the console, and the Master's TARDIS disappears. He tells Nissa that he sent the Master to the Zarefen's home planet, which should be now free from radiation that have poisoned it. Once there, the Xerophon entity can regenerate itself, thereby stranding the Master, who will have no power source for his own TARDIS. He then asks Tegan, sorry, he then asks where Tegan is, and unbeknownst to them, she is wandering the departures terminal in the airport, contemplating boarding a flight to Australia. Elsewhere, Stapley, Scobie and Bilton are giving a truthful report to the airport director, who doesn't believe a word that they say. A phone call comes through again, complaining about the presence of the TARDIS on the roof, and stapling the others rush up there to where the Doctor is trying to explain his presence to the two policemen. 
Doctor greets them before making his excuses to go back inside the TARDIS. Statinger is continuing trying to explain the nature of the TARDIS to the director, who starts to berate them, but watches in shock as the TARDIS team materializes. Stapley gives the TARDIS a salute before being shocked by the sudden arrival of Tegan, who is forlorn at being left behind. End of the story. So, now that we have successfully returned to Heathrow, and Tegan is back to where she wanted to be, allegedly, um, we're going to go to our favourite hangout, the trivia spot. So, what have you got for us this week? Cool. So, the air date for the story is the 22nd of March, the 30th of March, 1982. The writer for the story is Peter Grimwade, which might sound a bit odd. Uh, this is the first of three writing credits for Peter. We'll see his work again in Morden Undead and Planet of Fire. Why I said it might be odd is that we've previously discussed Peter's directing credits in Doctor Who because he directed Full Circle, Legopolis, Kinda and Earthshock. He had actually hoped to write or to direct this one as well but he was given Earthshock instead. The director of the story is Ron Jones. This is the second of six directing credits for Ron. We previously saw his work in Black Orchid, and we'll see it again in Ark of Infinity, Frontios, Vengeance on Varos, and Mind Warp. The working titles for the story were Xanadin, which just reminds me of Xanadu, Mm -hmm. Zeraphin, and Flight into Time. I will say, right... Watching it and listening to you say Zeraphim, I just kept thinking of Seraphim. And I'm like, are they angels? Are they angels? Are they going for an angel? But no, it's, it's a different word. It's very fucking similar. Yeah. Um, British Airways are actually given a copy of the script before filming. Um, because obviously it's very focused around British Airways. Um, and they asked for changes to parts of the story that could be considered detrimental to the company, including one line where a flight attendant referred to the passengers as punters, and they were like, uh, no, that is bad for the brand. Change, please. Um, and to be honest, like this story is probably the most obvious and might even be the only story with product placement throughout the entire thing. It was the first television story allowed to film at Heathrow. It was allowed to film in an actual Concorde aircraft and the branding of British Airways is all over it. Like, Hmm. I've flown BA. I actually quite like flying BA. But, like, this is excessive. Like, is it Jameson in the holodeck version of the Earth Bar of Ten Forward in season three of Picard, where like they specifically angled the label towards the camera. No, it's worse because they just keep repeating British Airways over and over again. <laughs> oh. The viewing statistics for this one are very interesting. In two ways. First, the actual television ratings show that part one was the most successful episode of John Nathan Turner's entire run as producer. 
It was the 26th most watched episode of British television in that week. Right, and bearing in mind, we've got soap operas and all the other stuff happening. Yeah. And it was the only time that one of Jonathan Turner's stories cracked the top 30. However, between episode 1 and episode 4, it dropped by 2 million viewers. So one could infer they were curious what was going to happen after Adric and maybe didn't like the story itself. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yep. Eric Soward actually wanted the director to be killed off in the story. He felt the character had outlived his welcome. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, I've seen people say that about the master a couple of times over. Um, you know, and we certainly said it a bit during um, my brain has Roger Delgado's era of like, you know, one second, of like the master constantly failing and okay, should we just get rid of him? But yeah, go on. No, I think you initially said that he wanted the, the director to be killed off and I'm like, I know the guy's an asshole in the story, but Jesus. No, I said he <laughs> wanted the that? master to be killed off. I thought, I, said, I thought you said director. No. <laughs> he oh. wanted the master to be killed off as he felt the character yeah. outlawed as welcome. Which, if I say it again, we kind of talked about a little bit during um, Roger Delgado's run as the master as well. The master is mm-hmm. a very weird character to keep coming back, to keep it interesting. Yeah. So, why Concord? <laughs> Why? So here's a story. Apparently, during a meeting, Peter Grimwade ran an errand for Christopher H. Bidmead at Heathrow Airport, which inspired him to do something with Concord. Concord was very big in mm. um, the early 80s. It was massive. Um, Christopher thought it would be a nice way to bridge um, the writer's fantastical notions with reality. While Peter hoped that he'd at least get a chance to ride aboard Concord. <laughs> um, which I just find hilarious. Um, interestingly, actually, completely separate. Um, I saw a video online the other week about why did Concord fail? Because Concord was amazing, right? in concept but why did it fail and the reason why one of the reasons why it failed is the time zone difference between new york and london because heathrow has only has particular times that you can take off and land because it's near residential areas and there's no flight times whatever but concord was so fast that in order to have a workable flight between new york and london the timings were just all off for it to Mm. make financial sense apparently I mentioned how you know BA was reviewing the skirt. There's a few other things that had to be done in relation to BA, um, particularly to do with BBC's legal department, um, because they had to change some names in the story because there was people who worked for BA who actually had those names. So they had to change out the names. So Irving became Markham and then Urquhart... Uh, Rathbone became Stapley and flight engineer Tully was subsequently renamed to Scobie. Which also, have to say, 
every time they said Scobie, every time you said Scobie, all I could hear is Tom Baker being Scorby! Which is a different name, but I just couldn't get it out of my head. Um, this was actually originally submitted for season 18, where it would have been the season finale for season 18. Um, according to Sarah Sutton, um, the location filming was so cold, it drove Janet Fielding to tears. She was so cold. Um, Ron Jones claimed that it was impossible to make the prehistoric heath or plain or whatever we're calling it indoors. Um, but he said it was, would have taken too long and been too expensive to do it outdoors. Whatever. Um, Eric Soward apparently felt the script could have worked with a more dynamic director. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, the Concord that was used for the production was G-B-O-A-C so Golf Bravo Omega Alpha Charlie. Did I get that right? Golf Bravo. Uh, I think it's Oscar. It's Oscar Alpha Charlie. Oscar. Um, which was the flagship of the BA fleet at the time. Um the registry can actually be seen on the radar screens. The other registry, which is Golf, Bravo, Alpha, Victor, Foxtrot, actually wasn't a Concorde at all. Um, it was a Beechcraft 58 twin-engined light executive aircraft. So, the master and Khalid. Um, Anthony Ainley, and this is the way they phrase demanded that he be given a, gal- a bald cap to wear to cover his wig because he thought he was too obvious otherwise. Um, Adric had a cameo mm-hmm. as an apparition in the story. Uh, two reasons for that. One, it satisfied um, Matthew Gordon has his contract, right? He had to be in X number of episodes. But also, Jonathan Turner wanted the death of Adric to be a surprise in Earthshock. And Radio Times lists the cast a week in advance. So he needed Adric, he needed Matthew to be listed for Time Flight before the episode aired where they killed off Adric in Earthshock. So it's not to spoil the surprise. Which is actually a very interesting way of doing it. Yeah, very, it really is. Uh, Matthew stated in an interview that it was a good point to leave as Time Flight was a terrible story. <laughs> uh, Peter Davison considers this to be the worst story of his tenure, saying it was a good story, but they ran out of money. They filmed the prehistoric landscape of Heathrow Airport in Studio 8 at TV Centre with a model of Concorde in the back of the studio. The monsters were bits of foam they didn't do the story justice. He found it frustrating knowing that what they were rehearsing was going to cook a pile of crap. <laughs> um, the story's low budget might explain why Heathrow, Heathrow's, Heathrow Airport's air traffic control is depicted as two men in a small room. <laughs> Which is true. It's two men in a broom covered. 
Um, on the DVD com- on the DVD commentary, Janet uh, claimed that she didn't remember it being as bad as it was until she rewatched it. Jesus, they're really going all in on the story. Sarah Sutton disliked it, uh, largely because she had no idea what was going on. Oh, God. Um, in part one's credits, uh, Anthony Ainley was credited under the pseudonym Leon Nye Tay, um, which is disguised the fact that it was actually the Khaled was the master. Leon Nye Tay is an anagram of Tony Ainley, a similar trick used to describe the, ident- the identity of Portreeve in Castrovalva. During the transformation sequence, where there's all that green fluid coming off of Khalid, um, a double stood in for Anthony Ainley, and he nearly choked to death because his mouth and nose began to fill with the green fluid and he couldn't breathe. <sighs> Time flight, like, ladies and gentlemen. We will get to our oh. overall thoughts later on. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about our cast, though. Where have people maybe seen them before? So, Captain Stapley is played by Richard Easton. It's only Doctor Who acting credit. I will say that other than Anthony, is the only Doctor Who credit for all of the people we'll be discussing today. So, only Doctor Who credit for Richard. His Don Who credits include Revolutionary Road, Dead Again, Henry V, and Finding Forrester. Richard passed away in 2019. Flight Engineer Scobie is played, not Scorby, Scobie is played by Keith Drinkle. He also played several characters for BBV Productions and also Big Finish. So he's done a number of Doctor Who audios. His non-Who credits include Agatha Christie's Miss Marple, The Body in the Library, A Bridge Too Far, Gandhi, and Coronation Street. First Officer Bilton is played by Michael Cashman. His non-Who credits include The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Crown Court, Dempsey and Makepeace, EastEnders, and Casualty. A bit more about um, Michael Cashman. He was a particularly notable figure in the gay civil rights movement um, for having helped found the Stonewall organization in 1989, along with the likes of Ian McKellen. Um, Mm. Michael and Ian would collaborate together on fundraising efforts for the Irish Trust, um, which raised funds to help support Stonewall and other important research. Uh, he later left acting in the 1990s to pursue a full-time career in politics. Interesting. Uh, Professor Hater is played by Nigel Stock. His non-who credits include The Prisoner, uh, the BBC 1960s series Sherlock Holmes, The Great Escape, and The Lion in Winter. I knew that I recognised them, and when I saw that he was in The Great Escape. I was like, who's he in The Great Escape? And I was like, he's Cavendish, the surveyor. The fella who essentially fucks the entire escape at the very end. Because one, as a surveyor, he actually plots the tunnel 30 yards short of the fucking tree line. And then he doesn't wait for the signal to get out of the hole. He gets out, probably falls in his fucking arse, and then signals the entire compound that there's an escape going on. Fucking Cavendish. (laughs) Nigel passed away in 1986. <laughs> now, I f- now I feel bad. 
like I said, College of the Master is played by Anthony Ainley. This is the fourth story we've seen of Anthony so far in the role of the Master. Previously, we saw him in The Keeper of Track in Legopolis and Castrovalva. Lastly, though we won't really be discussing her character that much, uh, Angela Clifford uh, is played by Judith Byfield. Her non who credits are, because they only, she only has this many, uh, The Brief, Play for Today, Bergerac, Minder, Wuthering Heights and Rosie. Judith passed away in 1989. Well, she was quite young, so... Yeah. Sad. Yes, indeed. So, thank you very much for the trivia section, as always. You're very welcome. Some very interesting, some very interesting stuff there. It was actually cool about... Um, the guy that played uh, Bilton, um, his history with Ian McKellen and the Stonewall organization. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was quite curious when I saw it pop up. But now we move on to the character discussion, where myself and Trish will take a look at the companion. Sorry, the characters that appeared most prominently in the story. So we have the Doctor, the companions, uh, any prominent characters, and the and then of course the villains. So. I have put down, obviously, for there's the Doctor and there's the Doctor, Tegan and Nyssa. I put Stapley and the two lads as companions. More sort of prominent characters. Or would you put Stapley as a companion and the two lads as prominent characters? Yeah, I see, I kind of see them as either a single and a duo or a trio. Mm -hmm. I think a single and a, I I think a single and a duo is like well I have them as a single and a duo yeah um but yeah I would put Daphne under companion and the two boys and Hater under prominent characters yeah uh Hater under prominent characters um I put down the Zeraphin themselves as a, as a quick discussion point because mm. I think they were interesting and then for villains we have uh Tony Ainley. Yeah. <laughs> not the, yeah, not the master Tony Hindley. Oh, so the way we do this is the person who reads the socials is the person who goes first. So you're welcome, since I'm the one who writes the order. Um, thank you. You get to go first. So, Paddy, thoughts on the Doctor in this, the final story of his first season? Um. Honestly, uh, there's nothing really noteworthy about the Doctor in this story for me, um, in terms of positives. <laughs> like, he spends the majority the majority of the story either completely confused as to what's going on, and then once he finds out what's going on, it's sort of like, woe is me. Uh, I have been beaten, I've been usurped i've been tricked i've been whatever and it's like i don't ever really recall any of your previous incarnations getting this flustered when the master had the upper hand no and it's like as well you know it's the master he's going to fuck himself over so all you have to do is just really wait um but like there's just nothing like there's no 
aha moment or you know good old doctor moment in the story at all like and in terms of his relationship with the others his best relationship is with stapley and the two or stapley and the two boys like because he is i just like can he not go one story without being an asshole to his companions in any capacity because like at the start it's don't tell me how to grieve, but at the same time, I'm going to tell you that you've grieved enough. And also then, you were about to rip Nissa to shreds for like, assuming that she tinkered with the TARDIS that stopped the Master. But then when Stapley, I can't remember who it is, Stapley or Stapley, my bad. But when he steps up and says, no, it was me, I was trying to be a bit clever. He lauds him. And I'm like, okay, are you just holding this to a higher standard because she's smarter than Stapley? Or what's going on? Because you were about to do to her what you've essentially done to Adric for the last four stories. So, like, I was watching it and I just remember kind of going, like, like uh, would you just fuck off mm. I've, I've actually kind of grown quite sick of this incarnation of the doctor over this series because of this yeah like it seemed every story there was something outside of castrovalva there was something for him to pick on for even the ones that weren't doing anything wrong or like if we went back to earth shock i said yes tegan was being annoying but at the same time I understood where a lot of her stuff was coming from. And as it went on, I was just like, why are you just being such an unnecessary prick the whole time? Yeah, like, my notes for the Doctor on this one. He was an asshole at the beginning, he was an asshole at the end, and he had a blip of assholeness, you know, towards the end. They're allowed to be upset. They're allowed to fight against the knowledge that their friend is dead. And they're allowed to mm. grieve for him for more than two minutes before you pressure them into the next adventure. They didn't want to go on an adventure. They wanted to mourn their friend. How fucking dare you? Like, I get him being a bit sort of defensive and protecting himself in the sense of, like, I can't just go back and save him. And, like, not being able to explain why and, like, that hurts him and whatever. But the way he said it was, like, I can't do it. Never ask me to do it again. I'm, like, explain it to them so they can understand. Oh, you know, Adric died a hero just like his brother. Like, I never thought I'd say this, but to quote fucking Neil Patrick Harris, Neil Patrick Harris's toy maker from the giggle well, well that's all right then <laughs> adric died but he died a hero like his brother well that's all right then what the hell you unmitigated prick mm. and then he's like oh we'll go off an adventure cool landed heathrow swan off without the girls to go look at the cr- cricket score because why not and then for the next two and a half episodes proceed to just be there. And what I say that to mean is that like he doesn't really engage with Nissa and Tegan in any big way. 
even with no. the three boys who he gets along with reasonably well for the way Peter Davison's doctor ever gets on with anybody. Hmm. He talks at people and he walks away from them with no explanation. He doesn't involve hmm. them in any of his thought processes. He doesn't involve them in any of his plans. He just goes off and does their th- his own thing and leaves them to their own devices. It's like he's not part of a team. And even if you look back on, say, you know, Tom's doctor was very independent and so was John's, they still would either give the other something to do or it was still collaborative, even though they liked being a bit of a loner and just to do things themselves and get all the credit. Here, he he's just an asshole. Like, I completely yeah. agree with you, the thing Witness said. That was completely uncalled for. Particularly, she's had a terrible fucking day. I don't know, we could talk about her more in a minute, but like she's having the most yeah. horrendous day ever. Um, and you're going to spin around on her, like, what were you doing? How dare you do this? Like, you leave her to fly this thing all the time. Get over yourself. And then when I say he was an asshole to the end, um, they don't know where Tegan's gone. I would like to point out, so yeah. you made a point where you're like, Tegan is back where she belong, where she said she wanted to be, apparently. She said several stories ago that she actually wanted to continue traveling. She said that. Yeah. He knows she wants to continue traveling. So he's an asshole for two reasons. One, he never fucking said goodbye. And two, he didn't wait for her to take her with them. So mm. you're an asshole for not checking if she wanted to go with you. And you're an asshole for just leaving. Like, it's, oh my god, he was an asshole at the beginning, he was an asshole at the end, he was an asshole to Nessa at one point, and for the rest of it, he was just fucking there. And this whole, the master has finally defeated me. I'm like, a fucking butter knife could defeat you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. No, do you know what could defeat him? Do you know what could defeat him? The piece of cutlery I fucking uh, hate. A fucking spork. A spork could defeat him. Like, <laughs> and not a good one, but the stupid wooden ones that don't even have pointy bits. They have little nubs. Like, yeah. Dude, get over yourself. And I feel so bad for Peter Davison because, like, Castro Valva, he was quite good. Yep. And some of this is just the line delivery, I think. Mm. You know, and again, it goes back to something that I've spoken about in previous episodes where, you know, I now understand a lot more why certain longer running Who fans were concerned about Matt Smith being so young when he took up Mm. the mantle because Peter Davison was the young one at one point, you know, people were concerned mm-hmm. about him being too young. And having seen Matt Smith, I would have been like, no, it's it's fine. Like, a young actor can play it, no problem. But Peter isn't playing him as a 750-plus-year-old alien. He's playing him as a guy in his 30s. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't know how to handle his emotions or deal with people. And 
that comes across that like he's playing him as like someone on the spectrum. I don't think he is. He's just playing him as an asshole. Someone who thinks he's really intelligent, treats his friends like shit, and loves cricket. Like, it's like a variation of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, but shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, I, I feel so bad, but like, I really could not get through this story fast enough. And yeah. the doctor Actually, was a that's what that is one. T- and that's another thing that's kind of like, okay, yes, I get it. Like the, um, the constant cricket references. Like, okay, it's it's getting a bit tired now. Like, I know no one on this TARDIS ever changes their fucking clothes. None of them. Mm. But like, get over it. Like, yeah. Um. The other thing as well that like, I think has been missing this season. And I think this story would have been a prime time to have it because he's reeling from what happened to Adric, apparently. I think he was reeling from what happened to Adric. Is he hasn't been given a big doctor speech. With no big doctor speech. No. Like we we've just had no moment. Yeah. Like Yeah. Like or even like just, like just a meaningful confrontation. Yeah, but like if we jump ahead in the timeline massively to um uh, Jodie's last story, I forgot the name of it, Power of the Doctor? Uh, Power yeah. of the Doctor, yeah. Um, quick spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. We have Tegan interacting with this Doctor. Mm. And he brings up Adric. And at the time, I didn't really understand Tegan's reaction to him bringing up Adric she seems to have a bit of a how fucking dare you attitude to it I mm. fucking get it now like from my memory because again I haven't it's been so long since I've watched all of Davis and Desera that sequence of power of the doctor I'm like hey neither of you are fucking shining in this back and forth because Tegan did stuff and she brings it up uh, like against him and it's like no you can't neither of you can play the cards that you're playing here these are bad fate arguments at least she was trying to fucking grieve though do you know she tried oh, to yeah. fight she yeah. tried to get him to go and save him at the end of last episode on in this episode as well like I still think that she wasn't quite as close to him as that story implied she was hmm but, like, if the doctor brought him up, I would, and if I was her, I would say, how fucking dare you? Like. Yeah. Yeah. How fucking dare I, maybe, but definitely how fucking dare you? Um, hmm. I think this is the most negative we've talked about a doctor in a very long time. Yeah, because, like, I think the doctor that we were most negative on was probably Troughton. But even then, it wasn't continuous. It always seemed to be isolated stories in his tenure. Well, I can't think of a doctor where we've said that he was an asshole from the intent, even of a given story. I think the closest would have been Troughton in... I got all the names of of the Daleks confused. Um, Even, Even of the Daleks? The one with Jamie, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I I would probably have thought maybe Wheel in Space. Yeah. But I suppose, I suppose the yeah. Evil of the Daleks did have um Dodgems. Yes. Which is <laughs> fucking hilarious. They're playing trains, Jamie. They're playing trains. Oh, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but fuck it, let's move on because I'm fucking sick talking about them. Yeah. Um, I suppose maybe like seeing as how we talked about her, uh, we can just move on to Tegan because yeah, and I a don't have a, a whole lot to a say. A bit of a spoiler because obviously I didn't do. Oh, sorry, go on. You're lagging. No, no, go on. No, yeah. no, go ahead. You're fine, sorry. I was going to say, like, I don't have a whole lot to say about Tegan, to be honest, because this was a great, this story was a great opportunity for everyone, for character growth, like, to see what their grieving process would be like and how they would build from it and how they would go on to honour Adric's memory. And Tegan is immediately just put into the background and her most prominent thing is she gets to finally do her job as an air stewardess. Yeah, so like I really wanted to see more from Tegan in this one for two very specific reasons. Right? One, they're back at Heathrow. Right? They're at Heathrow Airport. Guessing relatively modern day for Tegan. I kind of get the impression that that Air Australia flight is meant to be her flight. Maybe I'm wrong. Um... But this is her home turf. <laughs> and she gets to do nothing with that information. Absolutely nothing. One side comment to Nissa and Doctor, where are you going? Like it doesn't belong here. That's it. There is a plane. There is a plane. There's a plane. What would have been great to see because we've seen her fly the TARDIS. We've seen her try and change tire. Would have been great if one of the boys had been hurt and Tegan had to sit into that chair and do his job. That would have been fantastic. It would have been great for her because we've seen her fly the TARDIS and now she can fly Concorde as well. Would have been brilliant. Mm. But also, there's a plane with passengers. Here is a great way to showcase Tegan as an air hostess or an air stewardess or whatever. Except she does get that but in a super patronising fucking way. But patronising to Tegan and then her being patronising to everyone else because Stapley's, because Tegan's like, what about the passengers? And Stapley's like, well, they're your responsibility. Mm. Which just comes across as extremely patronising. Um, and then she says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, your flight is now back on schedule. I'm like, Tegan, Tegan, my love. Um, some of these people have died. Some of them have died. Here was your opportunity to show all of the caring natures of an air stewardess, but with the seriousness of the situation. Come on. Mm. And then the whole thing with her ending is I totally get her taking her handbag and going for a wander. Totally get it. Totally get it. Yeah. And they just fucking leave her there? Like, it's a bit of a spoiler because I didn't do a 
and leaving the show we have Tegan, right? Spoiler. Something, mm-hmm. I don't know how it gets resolved because I haven't fucking seen it. She will be around for a while longer. Um, But I'm like, this was, like, Tegan's show. Te- like, if there was a show to be show Tegan, where Tegan gets to do the brave, honourable thing in memory of Adric, or do whatever, this was it, and it, she gets two little bits that are both shit. Because the other thing is that she does, she manages the air compressor. Like, mm. I'm like, cool. Would have been great to see her actually fixing the plane, her coming up with the idea of using the pressure on the tires, you know, show that she's not a fucking moron. But no, she just mans the compressor. Um, and that's it. And then they leave behind. Because she went for a walk. Okay. <laughs> Such a waste of potential. Yeah. Uh, Talking about wasted potential, though. Mm-hmm. Nessa. Yes. I was very happy at the start of this story to see her back in the forefront. Mm-hmm. But then it's literally she is just a plot device. She is possessed, and then she's just an exposition bot for the entire story. Yeah. Like, she... Like, this is a story featuring the master. Mm -hmm. The guy who took everything away from her. And... What for whatever reason they're just fucking not writing it. And it's like she this is ideal because you've got the rawness of losing Adric, the fucking being toyed around with mentally, and then it's like the masters behind everything. This is the opportunity of a lifetime to fucking just let Nissa off the the leash and present her at her best. And they, yeah, they just, like, I'm amazed. Well, I would say I'm amazed, but I'm actually kind of not. Because given the stuff that I've read surrounding JNT's era. um, But, like, this idea came from the whole concept of, like, the... um, the plane going missing and all this type of shit is done by, it comes up by Christopher Bidmead and he wrote Castro Valva, like he wrote like the the first story Peter Davison's era, he brought in Peter Davison, Tony Ainley and like we like Castro Valva and like here's the opportunity for him to come some full circle-ish type thing and have a really good season finale and they didn't give it to him and you made the comment there that oh, was it Eric Sauward thought it might work better with a more dynamic director? Look, fucking spoiler, it would have worked with a better fucking scriptwriter. There is so much in this story that is just faff. Mm. And you waste so much opportunity for your companions and for 
and for the doctor as well, like to give him his due. Like this would have been a great opportunity, like for just all that frustration to come out against the master. Yeah. And none of our three core characters are treated with any degree of reverence for what they've just gone through. Yeah, like with Nissa in particular, because I really like Nissa. And again, here we have like this could have been the Nissa and Tegan show. Not the doctor being in the background be a broody bastard because of what happened to Adric. That's fine. But I don't know what they were trying to do with her here. And I don't think Sarah Sutton fucking did either. Because, no offense, this is the worst acting Sarah Sutton has done in her time on the show. It. Yeah. I hate to say it, it was fucking horrendous. But the shit they had her saying makes no fucking sense. It's not even techno babble, it's fucking nonsense. And the way they have it where like she sees the bodies first, so she randomly starts screaming at several points. And she can see through the illusion and like said so this is her reeling over Adric, who she was probably the closest out of the three of them Doctor in his current incarnation. I mean she was the closest of the three of them to Adric. She's now in this situation, someone's fucking with her head, and then, like, because at one point, she comes across the Malkor, or whatever the fuck it was called. Mm-hmm. This thing that she says it herself in the show took away everything. Right? This thing that she grew up around, she grew up near, it was there her entire childhood, it turned out to be the master in disguise who killed her dad took on his appearance did all of this shit oh my god and it's him again we've just lost adric and it's him again and like i said this is a chance for her to fucking go fucking nuts and they start doing something with her where the intelligence like the xerophon or one faction of the xerophon are guiding her they latching onto her they're like she's important she's whatever which is great. Like she's plowing through all those illusions and hallucinations, not a bother. But that isn't given enough time to settle and grow and to actually be a thing. It's just, oh yeah, and Nissa just plows through them, and then we're doing this, and I'm like, let the character have a fucking moment. Let her have a moment. Um, I think between Nissa and Tegan. And Adric, I think Nissa is the most wasted character. Because she's either an information dump, or she does the teching the tech so the Doctor doesn't have to. That's literally it. We didn't see her come up with any fantastic ideas or anything. And I'm just like, no. I don't know what you were trying to do with her in this story. Sarah didn't didn't know either. And it just didn't do her any fucking favours. At all. And like I think we just have to accept that we're never going to get Nissa versus the Master. And I just need to look up on AO3 or fanfiction.net if someone else just wrote that because the show is never going to give it to us. Yeah. Uh, so how about we move on to someone that's in my mind anyway a bit more positive. Stay play. Yes. I love the fact that he's 100% on the Doctor's side throughout the story once they go through the time mm. warp. 
like himself and the, the, the two lads like who we kind of discuss as a duo like he doesn't have his head up his arse about anything and he does his best at every opportunity to help out mm. like I think he's it's it's so refreshing to see that type of character again after so long mm. I like I think it also speaks volumes about his uh, leadership that the two lads, Bilton and Scobie, trust him implicitly and follow his lead on things. Yeah. I think that we've seen, like, obviously Stapley is a, is a pilot um, and mm-hmm. a, a commercial pilot. Like, he's not in the military or anything. Um, but, you know, we have seen military leaders before, some of whom have been great, some of whom have been shit. I would put him right up there with, like, the guy from Moonbase. And like some of the other like really mm. strong and even even in a way like um Lethbridge Stewart in um Web of Fear. Yeah. In the sense of like inspiring people, focusing on the right thing, you know, making the right decisions, rolling your sleeves up and getting involved. Um in many ways he actually reminds me of Tegan and Castrovalva. In the sense where mm. she was completely out of her depth and she just rolled up her sleeves and just did what needed doing. She flew the TARDIS. She did this. She did that. The fact that, like, he says to one of the boys, he's like, okay, well, I guess we're just going to have to learn how to fly this thing. Fuck it. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that he had the idea of, like, I was going to move some of these parts around because that might slow him down or whatever. I think Stapley in particular, and Stapley the boys as a collective are the only good thing in this story. <laughs> Maybe. <Yeah. laughs> um, and I love that, like, they get, they get back to Heathrow. He's like, oh no, we were 140 million years in the past. Yeah, no. Oh yeah, no, no. Like, we went through a time tunnel and this is what it is. And it's like, I th- I'm thinking two things. Either one, the guy smokes a lot of weed and he's seen some shit. <laughs> Two, he oh. is the only person in London who remembers all of the alien invasions that has happened and just kind of takes it on the chin. Yeah, he's like a proto-wolf. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, like, basically with Stafford, like I just, or Stapley or whatever you want to call him, I kind of want to see him again. He's again one of those characters that, like, if the Doctor ever returns to Earth, I'd love for him to connect up with him again. Yeah, no, I'm the same. I'd love to see a return of himself and the two lads. Yeah. Speaking of the two lads, let's move this plane along, shall we? Yes. Um, now, while they're not as prominent as him, they def- they follow his lead uh, by being more than willing to get stuck in. Mm. And I think of the two of them, Scobie probably has the more development or more prominence due to the fact that he gets separated from them and he has to fend for himself until he can rejoin the others. Yeah. And I you know, so like he meets up with Angela and he tries to get the doctor out of the pod and then when it's um once the master kinda of rounds everyone up, Scobie kinda of shows that he's very practical. Because he doesn't risk himself unnecessarily because he knows that he might be the ace in the hole should the doctor turn up. Or should the cavalry arrive or something. And again, I think it's just really refreshing to see a group that has the doctor's back 100%. And we haven't probably seen that since the unit days. Yeah. 
since we had Benton and Yates and the brig all together with the Doctor and, and Joe mainly, I would say. Yeah, I, I agree with you with the two boys. I think Scobie has a bit more to do just because he's on his own. Um, But I do think that like in terms of supporting characters, they're very good. The one negative I'd have about them, and this is the trio in general, and the two boys yeah. in particular, they're a bit too good. I think they're a bit too positive, yeah. a bit too supportive. I would have liked to have seen a bit more conflict coming from them, um, in the sense that they never get angry. They never vent. Which if you compare them to the unit lads, the unit lads would have had a good vent. Yeah. Um and like that that and this is me nitpicking for a negative on them. But they're a bit yeah. too Boy Scout. Well like I don't disagree with you, but I think in a, like I think with the way that this story pans out I can forgive oh, that yeah. oh, because no. of how oh, much I enjoyed it's them. Just, it's just like if I had to nitpick one thing, it would be a bit yeah. too Boy Scout. But yeah. what I also like is that like they work well as a unit. Like they work well together. They mm. clearly trust each other. Um, like I'm convinced that like Scobie knew he's like, well, they're not going to leave without me. Yeah. So I'm fine. I'm fine because they're fine. Even if I'm in a shit situation, I'm fine because they're fine. Um, but yeah, no, I think in terms of like prominent characters or supporting characters, I think they were very good. I think they got along really well, um, or as much as they could with the screen time they were given with the other characters, be it Hader, Angela, Nissa and Tegan, the Doctor. Um, like they were never talking down to Nissa or Tegan. Um, hmm. Now, so yeah, I would have liked to have seen them do more with Tegan specifically. But I think that, like, in terms of characters to have a support, I think they're very good. I love their, when they were all taking, like, turns telling the story of, like, the Indian rope trick to Nissa. Mm-hmm. I thought that was cool because, as you said, like, they weren't speaking down to her. They were just really happy because they got to tell such a funny story. Yeah, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, no, I, I, I liked them. I thought they were good. I did. I did, too. Um... On to the other prominent character, character I suppose, that I, I'm very confused about how I feel about him is Professor Hater. Hater's gonna hate. Yeah, <laughs> that's all that was coming through my head. Um, um or Haterade, um, like he clearly has the role of the doubting Thomas of this story. Also, I think this is the most. Cold War Doctor Who story we've ever had because he's like the Russians did it. Yeah, we're behind the so Iron like, Curtain. It's like, what the fuck do yeah, you think that's so, it? <laughs> what the fuck do you think it looks so like, like over there? That and Concord, like that, really dates this story. Um, but he's the role of the doubting Thomas, and I understand some of his actions because, like, he's. Even though he does study hypnotic um, effects and uh, it's not quite neuroscience, but it's, again, it's just all to do with the field of hypnotic studies. Like, he's a 
man of a practical science trying to fit what's going on into his worldview. And like we've we've seen that before, and I think with a different doctor, it would have made a much better dynamic. Like my thing with Hader is, I didn't particularly like him to be honest. Um, for a mm. number of reasons, I think back to other characters we've seen that sort of would fit a similar mold, and I think they've done it better. Um, I get being the Darren Thomas, but like eventually you just have to fucking let that particular thing rest but he's also a bit fucking snide and like oh psychometric oh, blah blah blah, blah. Right. that looks electronic to me and it's like you're the one who's apparently the hypnosis expert get off your fucking high horse now love um <laughs> take a step also, down he, he's more than willing to let the other passengers die oh, yeah. when his own life is at risk yeah, like, because it talks about the radiation and it's like is that the main reason that it's not worth an attempt to try and save them? Yeah, like I think Hader's only there because they had to kill someone off and it couldn't be one of the three boys. That's it. That's the only reason he's there. Yeah. Because we don't need him to explain what's happening because Nyssa can explain what's happening. Does that. Yeah. And even his sacrifice at the end, I don't know whether it's it was just a moment of bad acting or bad direction. But his reason for like going in front of Nyssa, the line delivery was much was a lot more sinister for science than I think what the line was. I could learn so much. Yeah, I know. I when it was just like his whole thing was like you know phenomenal cosmic power, teeny little living space. Um, but yeah, it was just like I think that was just maybe just a bad line delivery, but. He, there's nothing redeeming about this character. No. Even his death is self-centered. Yeah. So, he's not he's not a villain by any stretch, do you know? No. But like when you compare him to the three boys, it's like. Oh no! Yeah, Jesus no. Christ! No, not a hope. Not a hope. And then we have our actual villains. Well, well villain slash I... muddy grey area. <laughs> yeah. Because the Zerfin they're they're such an interesting concept. They really are. And it gets shunted to the side almost immediately once it's explored. Because we've okay. seen, like we've encountered Gestalt psychic entities before. But we've never seen one that isn't that, isn't that type of an entity by its very nature. The Viserifin, in order to save their race, all did essentially a big Vulcan mind melt. And normally in the Gestalt psychic entities that we've seen thus far, all parts are working for the one objective. But here it's interesting that there's still some semblance of individual, sorry, individuality that can be exploited. And the master kind of targets all the, as they said, the base and the negative aspects of it. And he does, and the way, and I think it's fascinating that the, the negative side is stronger simply by the fact that all of them are assholes. And they've managed to separate all the good guys out from helping each other. So 
I thought that I thought that was a very interesting concept that got thrown away way too fast. It's an interesting concept. They didn't get any time to explore. And I got kind of excited at one point and then got sad again because at one point the doctor refers to the giant bulk in my mouth as the animus. And I was like, oh, mm. the animus? We're talking about the animus? Yeah. And no, it, it, it wasn't the animus. It was an animus. Animus. But not the animus. Um, yeah, to be honest, I, I don't really care about the Zarephin. They weren't developed properly. Like I said, they were set aside in favour of the Master. I would have loved if it had just been the Zarephin. Mm-hmm. Forget the Master. The Master's not necessary. Just have it be the Zarephin. Yeah. Brilliant story with just the Zarephin. As it is, I mean, it's so confusing, like, what's happening. And they don't give it time to breathe. I'm like, fuck it. Whatever. Next scene. Yeah. And that that's literally just the way I see it, like it's almost like a really bad interpretation of the clause of access mm. yeah it's like it's like someone that's pissed out in their heads trying to recount the clause of access yeah. <laughs> um no i just have like a funny image of your mom being a bit merry and trying to recount that what episode of doctor who she watched with you <laughs> Oh, and then give you out to me for laughing at her. <laughs> um, but yeah, but now we actually have the out and out villain, the master. Why yeah. the disguise? No, why the disguise? Why the charade? Why the constant appeals for a glass of Shiraz? Jesus Christ! You must have been bored, like. What, what what is the fucking point of the disguise and the charade when no one knows who the fuck you are? That would be like if if like, you randomly turned up at my house to find me dressed in like my Harry Potter cosplay, making a cup of tea, pointing a wand at the kettle, and saying, "You know, inferno, or whatever the fucking spell is for fire," and yeah. you're just looking around, going, "Who the fuck are you doing this for?" Do you, like, do you know that meme, like that John Travolta meme where he's just looking around being like, what the fuck yeah. are you talking about? Like, oh, well, no, that, that's a really bad analogy because I, I know how weird you are. So Yeah, but to cosplay... I, I, that, like, I, that, it would... Okay, maybe we do a different one. Like, it would be... It would be like me dressing up as fucking wharf in my kitchen by myself using a basset to cut a slice of toast. With no one around, me in full fucking makeup, turtle head and everything. No one there. Hmm. What yeah. the fuck are you doing? It actually, it, it reminds me of, um, it's, it, it's a meme in and of itself. There's an episode of the Justice League cartoon where Lex Luthor possesses the Flash and like he's trying to escape the rest of the members of the Justice League, and he's like, "Oh, at the very, well, at the very least, I'll be able to reveal, I'll know the secret identity of the Flash." And he takes off the mask, and he just goes, "I have no idea who this is," and and it, this is it. It's essentially none of the passengers would have known who the fuck you are, and you, 
it's it's even stated explicitly in the thing. Your intention wasn't to try and trap the doctor. Your intention was to try and scavenge materials to repair your TARDIS. So, what was the... <laughs> what was the whole fucking point of everything? Like, you could have just worn your big Holocaust cloak that you were wearing from Deadly Assassin and Keeper of Tracking, and it would have been precisely the exact same thing. Why the horrible horrible fucking caricature of an arabian magician yeah and like the other thing that like we're missing the nissa explosion at him <laughs> also this master is not delgado's master and i can tell for one reason and one reason only he didn't make a single fucking snide remark about the fact that Adric wasn't there. <laughs> that is someone playing it super fucking safe with the character. Because you know that back in the you know, Barry Letts, Terrence Dix era <laughs> with, you know, the master who like tricks people into killing people and whatever <laughs> that like he would have been Oh, Nissa, how lovely to see you again. And Tegan, you're here. And where's Adric? Because he toyed with Adric. He played with Adric. He knew Adric the longest. Well, not, he didn't know him longest, I suppose, but he knew Adric well. I was like, mm. where was the needling? Where was the... Like... He does that. The doctor and or Nyssa blows up at him, how dare you speak of Adric, blah, 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 blah. Mm. We have tension, we have an interesting conversation that isn't Technobabble, and maybe I would have been interested. No. It's... I, I, like, when I was reviewing this, and I was going through it, and I was like, what is the fucking point of this whole charade? Like of all his using another species to get what he wants, hmm. this is probably the most stupid. In terms of how he did it, probably. What he's yeah. trying to do, I get. I, I get what he's trying to do. Hmm. But the how is just stupid. I I just don't have any words. I I, I really don't. <laughs> In that case, let's move on to our overall stuff. So, we've reached the end of the road for this story. And as always, myself and Trish will give our final thoughts and a score out of five for how we felt. Now, we talked last week during, I think, Adric's Rambling about how this story needed to score above a four for each of us Mm -hmm. for the season to crack a tree, Mm -hmm. I believe. You have as I have as much fucking chance of raising the Titanic from the bedrock of the sea by myself than that's this story has of getting the four. I I'm sorry. This story had a really cool concept that was introduced in episode three, and it disappeared at the end of episode three. We had two episodes of. I don't know what 
the fuck was going on. It was just babble and pointless pantomime. And as I said, if it wasn't for Squadron Leader Stapley and his band of merry men, I would have just, oh, I don't know. Like, the aftermath of Adric's death is handled so badly. And any opportunity to showcase good character development or even fucking good acting from our core trio, it's it's squandered. It's pissed away. And, like, I, the more I talk about it, the angrier I'm getting at this story. Yeah. And I had it at a two because of my I lo- my liking of the Zeraphin and my liking of Staffy Scobie and Bilton. They... Like that itself isn't enough to warrant overshadowing all the fucking glaring problems with this story. So I've actually it's a point five. I thought we'd never get lower than a one outside the gunfighters. This is gunfighters territory for me. Yeah, I when I was watching Episode 3, it was out of 2. No word of a lie, I almost didn't watch Episode 4. I didn't want to. I Genuinely, I was so confused. There was no character happening, which, again, is the reason why we do this podcast in the format that we do. You and I both like character. And I was just like... I watched it because I was... A, because I have to, but also because I was just like, how does the season end? Hmm. That was literally it. So it started at a two. When we started this conversation, it was at a one. Hmm. And that was for the boys. Yeah. I have never given below a one. I have to. I don't know if I can go down as far as 0.5 because I liked the boys. Um, I mm. I actually liked the concept of Concord in particular in the time that this story is set. Going missing, mm. trapped in time. But they mentioned that they were in the prehistoric era. Did you see a single fucking dinosaur? Or they're in the Jurassic no. era. Did you see a single fucking dinosaur or anything else fucking there. No, because they spent all their fucking budget on Concord. Like they could have easily had if they went back to the eighteen hundreds, it would have been the exact same fucking thing. Why the Jurassic era yeah. was and then they never uncovered the other Concord at the end of it. Yeah. No, they, it's just buried underneath the yeah, the layers so, of work that accumulated. <sighs> I can't in my heart drop it down to a point five because I do genuinely think the gunfighters was worse. Um, but I still have to give it lower than a one, which I did give the gunfighters a one. But like, yeah, so I I'm I'm going to point seven five. Like that's like 
And that's purely just because the two lads like this story is shit people just skip it and move on they don't explore Adric's death they don't explore Nissa facing the master again Tegan gets dumped back at Heathrow like I said spoiler alert somehow she gets back travelling with him again I have no idea how I'll find out next week this story was shit now one thing I do want to point out or I want to raise and I think we did it for the time for the gunfighters Everything you've heard for the last two-ish hours is entirely our This opinion. is true. Uh, and w- there are stories that we do not like that are acclaimed by a huge lot of fan base, and there are stories that we love that are completely disregarded. So if Time Flight is a story that you really like, love for you to get in contact with us so that we could discuss the points that you found interesting, because that is what we're all about as well, other than character development all that kind of stuff we love discussion this is true i say the story is shit we think the story is shit and if you disagree with us i would love to hear why i'd love to know what you see in the story that you did we miss a story beat did we miss a bit of character development did we miss a bit of action Mm -hmm. or a bit of fun um that makes one an interesting one for you like based off of what I read on the TARDIS wiki, what we saw of the viewing figures at the time, I think our reaction is fairly on the nose. But then again, you know, half the population likes Marmite, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, look. Yeah. So, yeah. just in case Oops. people are wondering, the averages for the season, you're 2.46, I'm 2.61, the average is 2.54. Which does officially make it our lowest rated season. Just scrolling back up, I think it does. Sorry, I'm muttering to myself. No worries. Yep. Lowest rated season. And I stand, again, in our opinion, I stand by that verdict. <laughs> but next week we have a whole new season. Yes, we do. Hopefully it gets better. Uh, Hoping for positivity. Well, from what I remember, we're going to see a couple of returns. Mm. And one might be surprising. So tune in next week when we will be discovering what happens in the Ark of Infinity. So then, bye.